Ephesians chapter 6, specifically verse 17, 17a, first part of it. It says, take the helmet of salvation, pick it up, put it on, is the implication. As we've been talking about, we are at war. We're at war. We're at war. The thrust of chapter 6 is that we would be able to take our stand against our enemy. Look in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. The war that we are in, we cannot have victory in our own strength. I know we say that, but Paul is really funneling down the fact that all that we've been given is because of what Christ has done for us. Everything we have, who we are, all the precious promises, everything is, is chapters 1 through 3 is, of Ephesians, it's, everything's been given us, it's been already done for us in Christ Jesus. And then 4 through 6 is telling us how to now live our lives, putting off, putting off the old life and putting on Christ, putting on the new life. And then he gets into chapter 6, verse 10, and he says, basically, all these things we've talked about, putting off the old life, putting on the new life, submitting to one another, loving one another, you've got to do it in the strength and the power that God provides for you. You must do it in His power. And so that's why he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And as we talked about over and over, and repeat over and over, the devil has schemes. He has plans. He has tactics for you, for us, for your family. Did you know that? And that's why... what God has given us is mighty and powerful to defend and protect and also to attack those spiritual uh, enemies that we have that are described in verses 11 and 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against you know, the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so this, this world that we cannot see is influencing the world that we can see demonic, satanic influence over the world that we can see. And verse 13 says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. When is the day of evil? The day that evil comes. When is that? I don't know about you, but it's been almost every day. I've got evil within. I've got evil without. And boy, they like to work in harmony, don't they? The enemy puts things around us, talks to us, entices us with things on the outside that pull on our sin nature on the inside. And he's clever and he has so many arrows in his quiver, so to speak, custom-made arrows for each of us and knows how to get us to pull us away from the Lord. And we must put on the full armor of God. And so we've already talked about the other ones, but he says, take up the helmet of salvation. Put on this helmet of salvation. The importance of standing against our enemy 
and our ability to stand against the enemy is when we put on the things that God has given us and done for us. Putting on in our thinking, putting on in our actions, putting on in the way that we approach things, the way we live. It's not just Sunday morning, it's a lifestyle. And so the importance of putting on the helmet of salvation. Helmets are to protect your noggin from being destroyed in battle. That's what they're for. I read this uh, neat report. Uh, it's an article by, I guess it's Debbie Dawson, Thursday, January 16th, 2014, in the Community Report. And it tells of a soldier, and let me just read it. It says, on May 31st, 2012, Taliban ambushed Chance Darby's platoon while it was dismantling uh, an improvised explosive device. Chance and his fellow soldiers were only a month or two before the end of their Afghanistan tour, and he described what happened. My gunner and I began to laying down fire when I got hit, Chance said. My squad sergeant, who had been directing our fire, also got hit in the head and went down. Chance, an army specialist at the time, shook off the hard blow and continued fighting. The round knocked his squad sergeant unconscious for 10 to 15 seconds. He then revived and rejoined the battle, which lasted for 90 minutes before the enemy withdrew. Imagine getting hit in the head with a round, a 7.69 or whatever it is. You get knocked unconscious, you get back up, you get in the battle. And Chance said his protective equipment made him a, belie- made him a believer out of him. He said, everybody used to say they hated wearing their, head- their helmets. He recalled with a smile, but I love mine now. I would wear it anywhere. Put on the helmet. Paul has been through the battle. He's been through the attacks. And he's telling his precious church in training, you've got to put on the helmet. If you don't put on the helmet, you're going to get hit. The Roman soldier, obviously this is what he's thinking. He wore a helmet in battle. Some were made of leather, but most were made out of pounded metal. How would you like to walk around in battle with something pounded metal over your head in the, in the, in the heat of battle and the sun and all that stuff? And maybe it was encumbering your vision a little bit. I don't know how many of you would enjoy that. I don't, in, I don't enjoy wearing a helmet in situations like that. Um, I remember playing sports and hot days and wearing a helmet. I just couldn't wait to get it off. It was itching and all this type of stuff. But I tell you what, when you experienced when you're at the batter's play and you had a fastball come at you at 80, 90 miles an hour and it hit you in the head, you were very thankful it was on. But obviously the purpose of a helmet in battle is to protect your head from a fatal blow. And there were different types of weapons in this Roman warfare. They had uh, short swords, obviously, for hand-to-hand combat. And those would strike at people. Then they had war hammers, which were meant to just deal just a devastating blow to someone. And then they had broad swords, which were longer. And those were meant to go over and just take a, 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 a just absolutely split you in half type of thing. And the helmet would deflect, much as it did the bullet, these, these blows that came at them so that they would not be incapacitated. Because all these weapons could be directed at an enemy's head to incapacitate them, to kill an enemy or to take them out of battle by, uh, you know, rendering them unconscious or splitting their head open. And spiritually, our enemy seeks to do the same to us all the time. 
And so in addition, Paul is saying, in addition to the belt of truth, which is walking according to the truth, and again, in addition to the breastplate of righteousness, that is the right acts that are fitting of a child of God, and putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace, which is the fact that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He says, and also the shield of faith, which is trusting the truth of God rather than the lies of Satan, which would seek to get us to go into rather into different ways opposed to following the Lord, rather than being content in God's provision and obeying God's ways. The shield of faith that's able to hit those arrows that come up that would seek to inflame us with worldly passions. But in addition to all these pieces of armor of God, we are told in Ephesians 6 verse 17 to take up the helmet the helmet of salvation. Now, what does it mean to take up the helmet of salvation? Because it just says, take up the helmet of salvation. Pick up your helmet, put it on. But what does it mean? It doesn't give much context. And so, what is salvation? What does he mean when he says to put it on? Now, we come to a passage of Scripture that doesn't really give much context. We need to go find a similar passage and usually there is, that does give context as to what he's talking about. If you know things about Jesus and you know things about Paul, is that when they taught, they would say things, and then they'd go repeat them in a different book with a slightly different angle so you'd get a better idea about what was going on. This is why Paul says to Timothy, hey, I want you to go and study the word so you don't have to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Go out there and search and get the full picture of what God's talking about. Come at different angles. So what's he talking about? The helmet of salvation. For example, when you think of back in Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 19, Paul simply says, be filled with the spirit, right? You're going, well, what does that mean? Thank you very much. Telling me to be filled, but how does that look? And he says in verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, stupid decisions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And he says kind of what that looks like, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, um, uh, songs of, the, of the Spirit. So this verse gives us a little understanding about what he's talking about, being filled with the Spirit. And so what we can see the little understanding that we have from that verse about being filled with the Spirit is Spirit-filled people, instead of singing songs and making decisions that are influenced by alcohol, will sing songs that are influenced by the Spirit of God and will you'll make great decisions. And, and there will be the edification of others, not the detriment of others going, oh my gosh, remember we were talking about karaoke? But it doesn't tell you how to be filled. And so we need a little more info. And as you go to Colossians 3.16, Paul's repeating himself. He says basically the same thing there. We get a better understanding of how to be filled with the Spirit. And it says, Let the message or the words of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. It's basically the same verse, but when he says be filled with the Spirit, instead of saying that, he says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Same outcome. And so we see that being filled with the Spirit, an aspect of being filled with the Spirit, is having the words of Christ dwell in us richly so that it influences, like wind in a sail, our decision-making, our thought life, what we do, how we live. It's possessing us, influencing us. So same thing with, uh, with uh, helmet of salvation. It simply says to take up the helmet of salvation. 
I not only want to teach you, but I want to give you tools as to go get it yourself. I want to fish, give you the fish, but I want you to go fish yourselves. Amen? Blue Letter Bible is an awesome tool. Larry and I always talk about that. But what does it mean? What does it look like? So Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 8 through 9, gives us more insight into what he's saying when he said, take up the helmet of salvation. When he says, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 9, but since... We belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, amen, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's clear that Paul is speaking about the hope of salvation. So when he's in Ephesians, he's saying put on the helmet. He's talking about The helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation. Gives you a little more context. We were not going to get wrath, but salvation. We will be saved through, from wrath through Jesus Christ. This verse brings up the doctrine of salvation. If you're taking notes, I would take them. This is the the doctrine of salvation. How many know there's there's a teaching about salvation in Scripture? You know that? How many, if I asked you what is salvation, would be able to tell me exactly what salvation is? Yeah, absolutely. And we need to know that. So before I quickly define salvation, there are three aspects of it. Just to let you know, there are three aspects of salvation. But really quickly, just the word salvation in Greek, it's, it's soterios. And we, that's where we get soteriology, for those of you who want to do that. That's the study of salvation. But the word means welfare, prosperity, deliverance, preservation, safety. So think about that in the context. They're trying to use words in English to to describe this idea of salvation. The idea of welfare, goodwill towards you, prosperity to give you something that you you don't have. Um, Deliverance taking you out of something that is dangerous. And obviously safety. Safety from the wrath of God. But salvation, if we're looking at that, it can be broken down into three components. Past, present, and future. Past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. Make no mistake, it's all one thing, but it's spoken of in Scripture in three different lights. Your past salvation, your present salvation, your future salvation. Salvation for the Christian is one aspect. In one aspect is something that happened in the past. Let me give you an example. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were saved from the penalty of sin. You were saved from the penalty of sin. When you said, Lord God, save me, guess what? When you put your faith in Jesus, you were saved. You received salvation from the penalty of sin. Amen? Hooray! We celebrate that. You were legally declared innocent from the penalty of sin through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were past tense saved. You were what the Bible calls justified. That's the doc- this justification. You were, it's just as if you never sinned. It's kind of how we remember that. You were saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 speaks of it this way. For it is by grace you have been saved. 
through faith. You have been saved. Now, Paul, is Paul saying in verse 17 of Ephesians that you need to put on the past tense of the salvation? I don't think so, because you would never even have the armor to put on unless you were saved. The second aspect of salvation is our present salvation, where we are continually being saved from the power of sin. Chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians. You're continually being saved from the power of sin in the sense that sin is no longer, it no longer has dominion or power over you. Does that make sense? You were once a slave to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ as we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. We're learning to walk according to the truth of who we are. Jesus, uh, well, it says there in, in Philippians 2, 1, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean to work out your, your salvation? Earn it? Live it out. And so this present aspect of salvation is called, what we call as Christianese for it, it's sanctification. Sanctification. It's where we are being saved from the power of sin as we put off the flesh and put on Jesus Christ. So there's our past salvation, which is justification, being saved from the penalty of death. There's our present salvation, which is sanctification, which is being saved and set apart from the power of sin presently. That's the effect of what already happened. Now, is Paul telling us to put on the helmet of present salvation? Not according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's the hope of salvation. It's the future aspect. That's what he's getting at. Not according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There's some verses we can go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23. I just jotted these down, so we're going to consult the orb here. One second here. 1 Thessalonians 5 chapter 23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Love that. It says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Do you see on one aspect he's saying, may you be kept blameless, present, but guess who's going to do that work? He is faithful. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who's bringing you through. And he's the one who is going to ultimately do the future tense of your salvation. That's what we're getting into. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, uh, so that second is that present aspect. is sanctification. But the word salvation encompasses that third aspect. So is Paul telling us to put on the the salvation of the present? Uh, salvation of sanctification, not according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. No, he's speaking of the third aspect, the hope of salvation, our future salvation. So the word salvation, really important, everybody, encompasses the past, present, and future work of God to deliver you from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin into his eternal presence. I love that about the Lord. God saved you, and he's working out that salvation in you. And he will complete it, church. He will complete it. 
It's not something that can be taken away. It is something he has done, he is doing, and he will accomplish in every believer's life. I love that about the Lord. So Paul is telling us to take up that third aspect of salvation, which is our future salvation. The fact that at the coming of Jesus Christ, we will be saved from the presence of sin. How many of you are waiting for the day when you'll be saved from the presence of sin? In other words, this whole world system and the evil, the flesh that is in your flesh, right? That wars against, that wants to meet whatever the world throws at us. The the body will be taken away. A new body compliant with our new spirit in Christ Jesus will be put together. The world will be recreated. He will speak and rule with a rod of truth. We will be in harmony with the Lord, with harmony with the Holy Spirit, totally. I'm looking forward to that future sure hope of salvation. And so Paul is telling us to take up that third aspect. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-9 says, But since we, have be- since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. So we have that third aspect, which is justification. We have justification, sanctification, and that third aspect, which is glorification. Glorification. Now, so this hope of salvation is described in Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. You need to know this. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20, where it says, Because God had wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to his heirs of what he was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and here's the part I want you to focus on. We'll focus on the rest when we get to Hebrews. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We fled and we've latched on to the hope that is set before us. And it says in verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You have a sure hope that is an anchor for the soul, sure and insecure. Where is that anchor put? It says it enters in the sanctuary behind the curtain where our, former, our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. It's in the very presence in the throne room of God. When it talks about you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus, what does that mean? You have an anchor, a sure salvation that is anchored there. You cannot be detached from it. The hope that we have is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. God wants you to know that your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. He will complete the work He began in you. He will complete the work He began in you. How many of you get nervous that God's not going to complete that work because you look at your own life and you go, man, how is this going to happen? I feel like I would give up on me. That's not... You see, the Lord, He is going to complete what He started within you. It might look less messy. It might look like parts are all over the shop. 
he's got it. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's putting together. He sees it. He sees it. He sees it. Not only he sees it, he's done it. And he goes on in Hebrews to compare Jesus as our great high priest in whom our hope is found. It says of him in chapter 7, verse 16, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus, where your anchor is, has the power of indestructible life. How many of you like having your anchor hooked on someone who has indestructible life? I dig that. All of you do not possess indestructible life in yourselves. But you have indestructible life in you because you are anchored to Jesus Christ through faith. Praise the Lord. Jesus has the power of indestructible life. That is salvation, eternal life. That's what eternal life means, indestructible life. I dig that. You see, Jesus is indestructible and has life. He's not like us. He is our priest forever. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, he says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing on in their office. I'm not going to get into that. But earthly priests die. They don't have indestructible life. They can't keep interceding. They keep dying because they've got a problem because they're sinners too. What does he say? But because, verse 24, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Not partially, completely. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is interceding for you right now. I love that. Paul is telling us to put our, into our thinking and into our hearts, put on the helmet of salvation, that sure hope of salvation that Jesus will once and for all save us from the presence of sin. The fact that we have sure hope of salvation should protect us in the heat of battle. How many of you are going through the heat of battle? And one thing the enemy wants to hit you with is You're going to lose your salvation. You're going to lose. You're going to mess it up royally. Don't move out. Don't step out. All these types of things. And we look at Peter. How is he able to live the way he lived? Like 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So much there. But this is not an unsure salvation. This is the sure hope of salvation ready to be revealed. It never perishes, spoiler fades. You have been given new birth, past tense. You are shielded by God's power, present salvation, until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, future salvation. Do you see how God's bringing us through the whole thing? You 
are victorious in Christ Jesus. Church, repeat after me. I am victorious in Jesus Christ. I am victorious in Jesus Christ. He wants to give you that mentality. I am not a victim. I am a victor. You're a victor in Jesus Christ. So how does putting on the helmet of salvation help us make our stand against the devil with that mentality? He says, how many many of you are willing to wade into the battle if you think you can lose? How many of you think, you know, there's an opportunity in front of you and and the Lord's saying, I want you to go on this mission trip to the other side of the world and you're thinking, I'm just going to lose. Instantly. And you start thinking of all the reasons why you can't step out in faith. Or that you're going to blow it, or you're going to make a mistake, and all these types, this type of stuff. How many of you are willing to go out, wade out into the battle, if you think you can lose? Not many. This is one of the tactics, one of the wiles of the devil, to make you think you can lose, and especially your salvation. Now I know there are dear brothers and sisters that see this differently, and I and I and I know that. But I'm just going to take a stand here and say, if God gives you eternal life, it's not eternal if he takes it away. There's a lot of things there. But he wants you to think, the enemy does, that if you blow it, you're going to lose salvation. He wants you to think that your salvation is dependent upon your ability to sustain it. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have responsibility We are to Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. Comply to, what is our vision, church? To glorify God. How do we do that? Through love and obedience to Jesus Christ. That's action. Love is an action on our part. It's proof. That's James' whole thing. You say that you have faith, but you don't have works in your life? Sorry. You're not saved. Because a person who is saved will be loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you know that's a lifelong process? That's why I call it sanctification. That's why Jesus, the whole New Testament was written. That's why, what do we look at? We look at the Great Commission to go out and to preach the gospel, and boom, they're finished products. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. How many of you have birthed children, and all of a sudden, they're just perfect? <laughs> Told I just one. but he wants you to play it safe the enemy wants you to play it safe church to operate in fear don't take any steps of faith because after all you're going to lose your salvation who wants to go into battle with so much on the line the fact is you cannot lose your salvation flip over to John chapter 10 27 through 28 We could do this a lot, okay? But I'm just going to take one verse, and you know that we could go off a long time on this. John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. My sheep, guess what? They listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give them 
eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus gives eternal life and the people he gives it to will never perish. And it goes on. Well, what if someone comes in and takes it away? What does he say? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That word snatch means by force. You can't be taken out of the hands of Jesus. No one can take you out of the hands of Jesus. I know we get into questions about, well, people who started off and then didn't end up following through. I know there's those questions out there. Well, this is why I believe those who are saved will persevere. Because God's doing the work in and through us. But we must surrender. We must surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, continually yield and experience the cross. Those things work together. But as we look at that, just God wants you to have a victor's mentality. To know without a doubt that you are saved and that no matter what war hammers and broadswords come your way and try to crush your hope of salvation, you must know and fully believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, church. You can take huge steps of faith. You can enter into the battle this year in your work and your family with us at CCF knowing full well that no matter what attacks and warfare may occur, you will be victorious. Amen. I love that. You will not be defeated. You have the promise of eternal heaven. You are heirs to the promise. You are sons and you are daughters of the Most High God and His promises are true and His salvation is yours and no one can take it from your hand. I love that. I'm praying that you would put on his helmet of salvation, that I would put it on as we move forward because the enemy's going to want to hit us with that. He's going to want us to be timid. He's going to want us to hold back, to not step out in faith. I'm praying that we would be so certain of the promises of God concerning us that we would be willing to live courageously and sacrificially knowing that God is with us and will reward us and will provide for us and will empower us and all that. And in the end, he's going to raise us up. If you are confident in the end, you will live boldly for Jesus. If you're confident of that, you're going to live boldly for Jesus. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he says, But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that all the surpassing power is from God and not from us. And he goes on and says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why in the world would Paul continue on? Why would he endure such hostility? Why would he willingly put himself in the crosshairs of the enemy? Willingly sacrifice? Willingly put him out there for ridicule and what have you? Why Why would he do that? What does he have on his head? He knows his God. He knows the salvation. He knows the rewards. He knows the promises. It's there. 
verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. That is something, that's going to be our verse for evangelism and witnessing, by the way. We try to get out of it. (laughs) Right there. Underline that, circle that. We're going to come back to that. But it goes on, since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. This is Paul saying, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The reason why he's able to speak, the reason why he's able to proclaim the gospel in a hostile, godless, God-hating society is because his faith is in Jesus. He knows God is going to raise him up. He's saved. He goes on in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is, tempor- not, uh, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see his thinking there. How many of you are looking at what is seen and going, I can't do this, I don't want to do that? Paul says, put your mind where the anchor is. Put your mind where the anchor is. Put your mind, it's seated with Christ Jesus. You are seated with Christ. Live like it. Put on the helmet when when the bashings come. Being willing to wade out into the battle. Know how to take your stand against the enemy he's going to be hitting don't be taken out of the game. Know where your, your, the surety of your salvation is. They were able to not let discouragement take them out of the fight. They were able to be persecuted. They were able to view every flaming arrow, every opposition as light and momentary trouble because they fixed their eyes upon Jesus, not on this world. They set the gaze of their soul upon the surety of the coming glorification at the return of Jesus Christ. So church, the Lord is calling us to take up the helmet of salvation and to get into the battle, to step out in faith, to speak, to preach, to reach, to love, to penetrate the darkness with the gospel, knowing that we will be victorious, that we have a sure hope of salvation. The last words of Jesus to the church, pretty much, In Revelation, many of you have been going through it in BSF. But if he speaks to the seven churches, notice what he says. I'm just going to paraphrase here. To the church of Ephesus, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. To Smyrna, I'm going to give you the crown of life. To Pergamum, I'm going to give you the the hidden manna. The manna that sustains. A white stone with a new name. Thyatira, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. I'm going to give you the morning star. To he who overcomes, and this is all to the he who overcomes, I keep repeating that, to he who overcomes, to he who overcomes, to he who overcomes, to he who overcomes, to he who overcomes. Sardis will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Philadelphia, 
uh, the church of Philadelphia, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write my name on him, the name of my God on him. And it goes on, a new name. Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We are victors. We are overcomers in Jesus Christ. We have sure salvation. Past. He saved you from the penalty of sin. He's saving you from the power of sin. And he will save you from the presence of sin. He, that's his salvation. It's just working out in our lives in time. The word overcome is to subdue, to conquer. You are more than conquerors in Jesus. Romans 8.31 What shall I say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Did you know God is for you? Because you're for his son. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will we also not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sakes we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is Paul, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, persecuted, hated, alone, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Happy Valentine's Day. You know, talk about a card. Love. Put on the helmet of salvation, church, and get into the fight. Romans 13, 1. And do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What is he talking about? Wake up. Put on the helmet. How many of you got the little devotion I put on Facebook this week? The Spurgeon one. Wake up. Put on the helmet. He's coming. It's soon. Whether our bodies pass away or whether he touches down. Church, we win. I keep telling you that. We win. I love that. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are his fellow heirs. Our names are written in the book of life. We have eternal life. Let's live with that tenacity of spirit as we put on the helmet of sure hope of salvation and engage this world with the gospel. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we just lift up this truth. And we ask, Lord that we would willfully trust in your ability and what you've said 
that you have saved us. That it would be so reflected that it would be demonstrated in our daily lives that we would not value this world above the unseen kingdom. That we would lay down things that the world holds dear because our inheritance will not spoil and it will not fade. And our hope is not in this world or in the stock market or in the currency situation or in the elections or in anything here. Our hope is behind the veil, seated in the Holy of Holies, where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sits and rules, and soon all things will be under your feet. And all will be made right. And so, Lord, we choose to live by faith. We choose to love and obey you. Be glorified. And Lord, where the enemy is hitting us, where we have taken arrows and we have received the arrows and we leave them in us, where there is sin that is just hitting our hearts and making us doubt our salvation. Holy Spirit, cut to the quick of those things within our heart. Let us be free of those things, Lord. Help us to confess and just say, save me. I'm caught again. And to throw off those chains and let us put our eyes back on the hope. Lord God, thank you for the battle that's ahead of us. Don't thank you for our enemy and all that stuff, but we thank you for your faithfulness in it, that you are going to show yourself strong and powerful. So teach us how to armor up. In the name of Jesus, amen.